Welcome to Deep Natter. In this episode, we get our very first voice memo from a listener, and it's a terrific question around something that I think most, if not all of us, have struggled with at one point or another, and that's imposter syndrome. It's a big question, and I hope we tackle at least part of it in a way that resonates with you. Here we go. Hey, we got our first uh, voice message. Yes. From a listener. Uh, and I, th- I think, you know what, I think I can pipe it in. Do you, do you want to start with that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let me see if I can pipe this in so you can hear it. Hey guys, this is Mike Beecham here. I just had a quick question for the show. Um, we're all aware of the impact of imposter syndrome, particularly in the areas of creativity. And I think over time, you learn to accept that it is a thing um, and you try and work with it as best as you can. But I wondered whether you both had individual coping mechanisms for when uh, this syndrome hits. You know, for example, do you go in on yourself and, and just wait until it passes? Or do you push on through and try and create irrespective? Or perhaps uh, from another angle, do you use it as a strength to help move you from one area of creativity into another? I just wonder what your thoughts were. So thanks very much. And thanks for a great show. Take care. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, so just a, just a light topic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, you, do you want to take, you want to take this first? Yeah. Okay. How do you deal with it? I mean, you, you don't seem to ever, and if you do, I'm sure you do, but you don't, you don't show it. Uh, in the same way that I think a lot of other people do. Do you feel imposter syndrome often, occasionally, ever? I think I used to, and I don't really as much. I don't really think about it anymore. I think the assumption might be, well, that's because you've reached a particular level, you don't feel like an imposter, but that's not true at all. It's nothing to do with that. And in fact, I don't think of myself as any great shakes in anything I do. I think I'm competent in a bunch of stuff, but I'm... I don't believe I deserve the attention I get from my photography, for example. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make me feel like an imposter anymore because I think think imposter syndrome is a comparison problem. So the only only way you can get imposter syndrome is by feeling like you're getting too much for something or you're pretending to be something that you don't think you should be and other people are more that thing. It's all me versus other people stuff. Mm. It's the only way imposter syndrome works mm-hmm. is in the comparison. So I think I don't do that as much anymore. And I think it also comes down to like having a really sober view of where you're at. Um, because I don't, I don't believe that imposter syndrome it usually comes when people use the phrase, it's not from people who are like actively trying to pretend they're a bigger deal than they are. It's people who are worried that they're going to be caught out for not having a skill set that they're expected to have. I think it's more that, if I'm right. Um, and and I, don't, I don't really have that because I know what skill set I have and I know what I'm not good at. So if someone asks me to do something, it's very easy for me to say, oh, I'm good at that, I can definitely do that for you, or no, I'm afraid I'm not very good at that. And I don't really feel insecure either way on that anymore because I can't be good at everything um, and I can be good at other things. So if someone said to me, hey, we want to commission you to do a bunch of landscape photographs for a calendar, I just go, you know, I'm not that kind of photographer. There's people who can do that better. 
Um, and I don't feel like an imposter because they turn around and go, hey, you're a photographer. You're supposed to be able to take photographs. Well, that's your fault that you misunderstand the medium, not my fault for pretending because I wasn't pretending. It's your false assumption, if that makes sense. So I don't think I don't think I have that like I, I have a pretty sober understanding of where I sit in the in the grand scheme of things. And I've got a long, long way to go. And I'm fine with that. And I'm also really careful in the way that I talk about my own work. I don't try and make it sound like I'm an expert in everything because I'm not. Did you ever? I think when you start out in anything, you have this, I think you think it's the way to, to get ahead is by, um, is by pretending you're better than you are early on. It's marketing stuff. So mm-hmm. if you're a freelance photographer, especially you'll want to pretend that you understand all aspects of photography and anyone who asks you to do a job, you can absolutely do it. I, I had a friend who said to me early on when I started, he's like, if a client comes to you and asks you to do a particular sort of photography work, you don't know how to do it, agree. You say, yes, you can absolutely do that. And then just make damn sure that when you walk on set on that day that you know exactly what you're doing. And and then you just have to do a ton of homework last minute, but you have to make sure that you're ready to go. But say yes to everything. So I think you have this like, well, if I'm going to say yes to everything, I am kind of pretending that I know how everything works and I'm faking it till I make it a little bit. But after you've kind of passed that level and you've worked out what you can do, you know all the basics, you've worked out what you can do, and what you can't do, and you're just being honest with that to everybody, there's no need for that imposter thing anymore. Because mm. there's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to tell you I'm brilliant at something. I'm letting right. you know how good and bad I am at different things. So there's no ruse, certainly not on my end, and I'll, I'll tell anybody um, who asks how good or bad I am at any particular thing. Um, I think it might be like that early expectation of, of just trying to pretend to everybody you're already great and you know what you're doing. And I think if you do that, then yes, you have some sleepless nights going, what if they catch me out that I don't know right. how to do They're going to realize things? that I'm, I'm leaning on these three crutches that I use over and over and over again, and that's it. And, and that's a big thing because I think, I think that here's another way I think imposter syndrome hits, especially for photographers, is you start out in photography and you take – a ton of photographs and you get attention for maybe five of them because for some reason everything came together and the stars aligned on the day and people love those photographs of yours and they associate you with those photographs but you don't have the control yet to replicate that and actually it was half luck and half skill and you're not sure if luck will show up every day right. so so you're worried that someone will ask you to do that again for them and you don't, you know that it might not happen because you don't yet have the control and the skill set right, right. and the consistency. How did I make that happen? Or how did I do that? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like yeah. The, the, you just kind of, well, the light was just amazing. And then your friend asks you to take exactly the same portrait and you go in and you take a portrait on a day where the light's terrible on a natural light day and you can't do it. And you don't know how to make it happen with the light available. You don't know how to add lights yourself. And you're worried that you're going to go. The light's going to be terrible. You're going to try to take the portrait. They're going to look at it and go, well, that doesn't look like that amazing thing you did. Are you an imposter? You're like, well, no, I just can't do this every time yet. But you can't say that because you're scared to admit that. So I think think when you get to a particular level where you can control a skill set, then you don't have that imposter syndrome anymore and you're clear about what you can and can't do plus i think you also have the confidence to educate clients who have expectations as well when you reach a certain level so now if a client asks me to do a job 
I know a bunch of questions to ask, like, where are we shooting this? What, what, we need to make sure the light is good on this day. We need to make sure these conditions are in place to achieve that kind of shot. Things that aren't in my control and that I externalize and say, I need these things to happen to do that kind of photograph. Um, so that they understand that this is nothing to do with my skill set. My skill set will be in place, but there are other other factors that aren't me. Then I don't feel right. like an imposter because I'm separating out what I can and can't control because I'm clear on it myself. Um, so I think because I've kind of worked all that stuff out for myself, I don't I don't have it n- nearly as much anymore. And I think the more you grow with anything, um, it kind of falls away. The comparison goes away. Your skill set improves you can produce work consistently and you know what you can and can't do and you say yes to the right things and no to the right things and then there is no comparison there's no worry that you're going to get caught out and you also know how to talk to clients or even fans of yours who have expectations you know how to say hey i'm not good at this i'm just trying it out and that's okay to say for anybody no matter how long you've been doing it you, you you're more open with where you succeed and fail because you don't you, you're not trying to market yourself as aggressively does that make sense yeah. Yes, but you are also, uh, you, you're, you're not the average bear in that um, you're secure in, in who you are and what you're capable of and, and sort of where you are in, in the hierarchy of photography. You, you mentioned, and I think it's true, there are a lot of artists, not just, it's not unique to photography, who, who need to and have bought into that fake it until you make it and project success and talent and, and, and all of that, no matter the cost. Oh yeah. Well, we're told to do it, aren't we? And mm-hmm. you and you and mm-hmm. I both know who those, uh, middle management photographers are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's easy to fall into, you know, I, I mean, I, as a designer, there were things that I leaned on and used as crutches for years and I recognized it. And you you fall into a comfort level because you you can you can almost predict how people will respond because they are there are conventions that are pleasing they're appealing that 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 people as clients and customers like um i had a a, a professor in college one of my design professors who we would and i think i've told you about this we would whenever we would do a project he would have all of us put everything up on the wall. Then he would ask everyone and we would go around the room talking about each other's work. It was a a crit wall session. And, and he would routinely ask, what do you like the most about this? What do you think works the best in this particular project that you've done? And you would tell him and he'd say, okay, take that away and go back and redo it. Mm. Forcing you to sort of get around or get rid of those things that you would rely on again and again and again. And it was incredibly helpful, but somewhere along the line, I, I, I fell into that, that comfort zone of like for a long time in, in design work that I would do, I would lean on drop shadows and like really everything I did had drop shadows on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, because it, 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 it looks good if done well, most, not most, a lot of people use them very heavy handedly and in, in yeah. the same way that a lot of people post-process their images very heavy handedly, mm-hmm. less is more. But I fell into using those again and again and again. And I finally, at one point had to really take a look at 
what I was doing and remember those words of Herb and and really strip away what I was doing and try and go back to basics and 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 start again, not relying on on some of the things that I had been relying on for a long time. I, I've just been going through because uh, I'm putting together collection five at the moment, and between mm-hmm. between uh, images, I usually pull quotes from videos during the year um, that sort of like peppered throughout. And uh, the one I was just watching this afternoon, trying to pull some quotes out of, was l- literally this: "I'm getting stuck in a creative rut," and how it's our own fault always. I think, yeah, because. It means that, I mean, creating a rut with a wagon wheel, literally in real life, means we're just, we're just repeating that exact same path every time and then deepening the groove. And I think when we do that with any creative medium, it's because we're, we're repeating the same trick, exactly the same technique, because maybe it gets us the attention that we want. And then we complain that we're stuck in a creative rut. Well, we, we kept repeating that. That was our that was our conscious choice to keep doing that because it was giving us something we wanted, and the only way out is to bravely try a new path, to to, right. to try something completely different that is less stable, that's that's less sure, that's more unknown, sure. that might fail, sure. and I think that's that's that imposter syndrome thing, isn't it? Like we, we feel like an imposter when we're wearing that rut deep because we know that if we're asked to do anything else, we're in trouble. We're in because, trouble. Yeah. People will look behind that curtain and it all crumbles. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's yeah. hard. It's really hard because there's nothing wrong with when you start out. You, you, you do sometimes just hit on something, you know, a little thing. And people go, I love that thing you do. Sean, I love it when you do diagonal hard shadows on a wall. You know, mm. like I could easily get stuck in that rut. It's a very easy thing for me to do nowadays. And, and I know it gets a lot of good attention every single time I post those images, but I would get stuck in my own rut and I would absolutely feel like an imposter if I mm. knew that's all I could do and, and everyone knew that I was that photographer, but I would be useless to clients unless they wanted exactly the thing that I did. I'm not a well-rounded photographer. I don't have a varied skill set. I know one trick. And if you, if you pull me outside of that, I, I, I will fall apart and produce a lot of crap. That means, <laughs> right. that means I'm an imposter. I'm pretending that I'm a competent, well-rounded photographer, but actually I'm leaning on one trick very heavily and I don't know anything else. I think that's also a reason people feel that imposter syndrome. And then the sure. solution's obvious. Don't lean on one thing. Work hard constantly to be broadening your skill set, to be making sure that you can do a bit of everything, that you can at least that you can at least competently service the clients who, who you want to go after for work in, in all their needs and not try and pull them towards the one thing you do all the time because outside of that, you, you're, you're, you're not very competent. Like that, Of course you'll feel like an imposter if you're doing that. And that's self-awareness and being on, honest with yourself and also putting that need for attention in a box. Because if, if, if I go and shoot the hard light and shadow stuff every day, I know my Instagram would grow fast. I get nicer comments and more likes. That stuff doesn't matter. Like it doesn't get me more work, that stuff. So it can't be why I shoot the images that I do. The reason to shoot the images I do is to, is to teach myself new things constantly and broaden my skill set as wide as I can because that will make me feel broadly competent for anything that comes up and will mean I don't feel like an imposter when a client comes calling. Right. I mean, I, I think that's why I try to do as much research on guests as I do, mm. because I, I don't want to. I don't want to 
be faced with silence of not knowing what to say or what to ask or how to respond or or feel like I'm I'm phoning it in and they've wasted their time talking to me. I mean, I'm terrified of that every single time. Every one that I do, I'm afraid that that somebody's just going to go, hold on a minute. I, I think we're done, <laughs> you know, like midway through something because I haven't either, you know, done my homework about them or I don't know, whatever it might be that that they're going to see that they've made a horrible mistake in in, you know, granting me some of their time. Okay, but that's interesting to me because I think, I don't want this to sound patronizing, but I, I do want to push you a little bit on that because I think mm-hmm. you, are, you are plenty far enough down the track now to not still be feeling that because you are obviously competent at what you do. And you've had such amazing feedback from guests who've been on your show who want to come back on, big names who ask you to come back on. Yeah. That at some I point just don't want to let them down. It's, it is, it is entirely about wanting to sort of maintain the, the level that I've tried to get to that, that, that bar for myself. And it is an internal bar. It's, you know, there are a lot of people doing really great work and, and there are a lot of people doing not so great work on any given day. I hope that I'm at one end of that spectrum but it really, I mean, you're only as good as your last show, right? I mean, and I, I want every show to be the best that I can make it. I, I want to bring the best of me to bear, which is, I think, why I do a lot of reading or listening, or it's why I do those in, intro calls. It's why I try and gather as much as possible and build that comfort level with, with a guest as much as I can with the time that we're, that we're allowed. But I'm still nervous every single time. I'm still, you know, have I forgotten this? Have I, have I, you know, am I going to ask the right question? Am I going to ask something that they didn't want to talk about? Am I going to be able to pursue this rabbit hole in a way that's interesting to them and an audience and me and, 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 and. So there's all of this stuff always working in my head. But that just means you care. Uh, And I I feel the same when I go out and film a documentary with somebody. I hope the interview goes well. I hope I capture good stuff from them. I hope I ask the right questions and capture it in a nice way. I hope I don't screw up the lighting. I hope I get good Mm -hmm. B-roll. I hope I find the right music. I hope I present this in a way that that really makes them shine. I feel the same. But but that's not an imposter syndrome thing for me personally. That's just a like... I, I'm I'm aware of what's in my hands in those situations, and I hope I don't make mistakes because everyone makes mistakes. Um, but if I do, I just need to make sure that I can say at the end of the day, I, I did try my best. I just made a couple of mistakes um, because then I could let myself off the hook. And everything outside of my control, I just have to do my best. And it and and whatever happens, happens. Like if the person who I'm interviewing isn't having a good day, there is there is very little I can do about that. I I, I could be an amazing interviewer on a day. But I can't make them feel better about their day and I can't make them make the decision to give me more than they feel like giving me. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess like that's where I don't load myself too much with the imposter syndrome thing there because it's not me always in those. And I know what's me and what's not me by now, hopefully. And all those things you're talking about, like doing your research and doing the pre-calls and everything, that's your toolbox, yeah. You know, that's, those are the things that you've learned to do because it makes you better at what you do and you're diligent about doing them as best you can every single time. For me, I think, I think you can start to like enjoy it from there 
still having those nerves because you care and you want it to go well. I mean, that's a, those are good nerves, I think. But I, I, I don't think, I mean, for, I, I imagine for anyone listening going like, Jeffrey feels like an imposter potentially when he does interviews. They'll bet you they'll be surprised by that. Yeah. Even people that I've, that I've spoken to before, if I get the opportunity to speak to them again, yeah. you know, there's a part of me that's going, okay, they're just coming back to have a go at me. You know, they're coming back to go, <laughs> I want to call you out on this thing that we talked, you know, like. <laughs> I mean, I'm, t- I'm telling you, that'll shock some people. They weren't, they weren't yeah. know what to do with that because it, that is not the you we know listening to podcasts. You, you are a consummate professional who, who is a, who is a brilliant interviewer. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because like it's it's that's we I think everyone who has imposter syndrome is probably pretty good at what they do as well. I think you you know about the Dunning Kruger effect. Have you heard about this? No, tell me this. So it's a it's the idea is basically there's there's if you imagine a graph and you've got on the y-axis the vertical axis you've got um, your perceived competence at what you do. So how good you think you are at what you do. Okay. And on the x-axis, on the horizontal axis, you've got your development over time. The, the Dunning-Kruger effect kind of plots it so that at the beginning, at the, very, at the very beginning of the graph, you start at the bottom. You've just begun something and you don't know very much. Um, and you know you don't know very much. But with a little bit of time, just a very short amount of time, what you think you know skyrockets. Like there's a huge exponential growth. And then it peaks very suddenly and then it drops off very rapidly. Um, so basically it's like, when I start at something, I know I don't know very much. Within three weeks of doing something, I got a compliment for something, and now I think I'm brilliant straight away. I know everything. <laughs> this is easy. There I've is nothing left for me here. Exactly. I've got. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I I have conquered this. I don't know what people right. make it such a big deal about. Then shortly after that, for most people, hopefully, and this doesn't always happen, it again drops off because you suddenly realize how big the playing field you're in is, and how much mm-hmm. there is to know, and you realize how much you don't know. And then when things start to climb again, in terms of how much you think you know, it's a much more gradual growth over a much longer period of time. And I think, I think people who, who have this imposter syndrome are at the bottom of that graph halfway along their journey where they know how much they don't know, if that makes sense. Yeah. So rather be somebody with imposter syndrome who has been on this journey for a while and you know how much you don't know and how, how, what a vast sea of knowledge and skill there is out there to still learn and access to make you good at what you do than be at the peak of that curve where you've just begun and you're shooting your mouth off pretending you're everything and you believe you're everything as well. That's the Dunning-Kruger thing. It's a psychological state. It's not just talk. You believe you're brilliant at what you're doing. And we all know those photographers or musicians or painters or anybody who've just begun and they already think they're amazing. Right. And you can't convince them otherwise because their ego is bulletproof. Don't be that. Don't be at the peak of that curve. Imposter syndrome, I think, means you've realized how long the journey is. You realize that you've been doing this for a while and you can see how long it's going to take you to get there. And you're worried about getting found out, sure. But at least you're aware of how much further there is to go and how much there is to learn. Everything after that is just down to your self-discipline and choice going out there and teaching yourself as much as you possibly can. And that's a good thing. That's a good problem to have. And I reckon if you don't want to get caught out along the way while you're doing that, you just have to be honest about what you're good at and what you're not. It's the only way to, to, to not get caught up in that whole thing. But I think somebody like you is, is, is you've, 
I think your like crippling lack of self-esteem has meant that like you've been doing this for a while and you're, you've got an incredible skill well, When you set. say it like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't want to beat around the bush. When you, when you've, you've got this incredible skill set that I think, I think a lot of people would give an arm for. They really listen to you and go, he's brilliant at what he does. The amount of people I've spoken to go, there's very few people who can interview a creative person like Jeffrey Sidoris can. And yet you're sitting there, what is this, like, 10, 15 years down the podcasting road going. Yeah, since oh, 2009. I wonder if they're going to catch me out and realize I'm not very good at this. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. only you that's thinking that. And, and I, don't, I, don't know it, I don't know if it's about you knowing how much further is to go. I think maybe, and this is just a guess, maybe it's to do with how, how good your heroes are and how high your bar is. Maybe it's something like that. I think there's part of that. I think there's also never wanting to be that that person that I allowed myself to become in college. Okay. Because I was on on the other side of that. That that you have nothing to teach me. I I am here and if you don't get what I'm doing, that's your problem. That's not my problem. You know, like that 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 the the other side of hubris, you know? It's that Dunning-Kruger peak, isn't it? So you were at yeah. the beginning of your journey going, oh, I know everything. You can't teach me everything. It was exactly that. And I was insufferable. And I got slapped for it hard by people that I respected and admired. And mm. that started a new path. And, and I swore to myself, once I recognized that I was on that new path, which took a little while because, of course, you go... Well, it's not me. It's them. They, they just, they're just jealous. They don't recognize, you know, whatever it is. They don't recognize my brilliance. It's their problem mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. But when you, when you recognize that you're on a different path and when you realize that, that they were right and that you have an extraordinary amount of work to do and you, you make that realization in, in my worldview, I think humility makes better art. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think um, it's a requirement uh, for me anyway. And there's, there's a big part of me that never wants to go back mm-hmm. and, and never allow myself even, even the inkling to think that I have it all figured out. Okay. So, so how do you personally strike that balance between never wanting to go back to being some egomaniacal artists who think they know everything and you're, you're afraid of that. So you want to stay humble and admitting to yourself the competence you have in whatever sphere you're working in and having a confidence about it. I think it comes through occasionally. And actually, it's a good question. Thank you. I mean, I think it's equal parts mania and depression. You know, <laughs> I, I get I get very manic about the things that I that I am interested in and curious about. But then I fall back into that other area of thinking that I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, I'm, and, and when you look at, this is another interesting kind of aspect to it, and it's, you and I have talked about this a number of times, and I, and I know intellectually that this is the case, but when you see, when, when your numbers, when your audience numbers don't reflect um, the type of or the level of comment that you get, the level of enthusiasm, the effusiveness of an audience, when the numbers don't reflect that, you don't question the audience, you question yourself. 
what am I not doing? How am I not doing enough? Or what am I not seeing? Or, or, mm-hmm. you know, why, why don't I have X, Y, and Z? And it, you're right. It goes back full circle to that comparison thing at the very beginning mm-hmm. where it is a problem of comparison. You know, why don't, why don't I have the, the kind of numbers that X, Y, Z podcast has? Why don't I have the kind of, you know, reach that, you know, whatever show does. Um, and it, it can't be, it can't be anything other than I'm incompetent. I'm not, I am not competent enough to have those kinds of numbers. That's what it has to be in our heads. That's the cycle that we, we allow ourselves to get into. And I know that it's not true, Yeah. but there are days where I don't know that, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I think we all have those days. Don't we? I mean, I have those days. Yeah. But then, I mean, on, on my good days, I remind myself that when I have those bad days and I'm telling myself that because not enough eyeballs are on the thing that I'm doing or not enough people care about it, that I'm doing a bad job, I have to remind myself that that's based on an assumption that the crowd is a good judge of anything. Mm. Um, and then I go and look at TikTok and I realize the crowd wants to watch videos of granny falling down the stairs. <laughs> and then I realize, oh, the crowd doesn't know so anything. Cruel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the crowd doesn't know anything. In fact, the crowd has a very like base short-term attention span sense of humor and might even be a little bit cruel. So do I want to make sure that I get the most, because I could play any of those games as well. Sure. Do I want to chase that stuff or make stuff I believe in that maybe a smaller group will get. I mean, I say, I've said to you before, and it's happened already, that my YouTube channel would plateau sooner than some others, especially yeah. ones that talk about gear, because I knew that what I'm talking about, far less people care about than people who want yeah. to just get some quick information to shop for a camera. Now, on my bad days, I'm like you. I'm going, oh, should I be doing more to kind of grow this thing? Am I failing? Am I not doing the right things? And then on my good days, I, I remember, I always knew this would happen. I always knew that if I, if I do things which I think are valuable, less people will agree with me than, than if I did something that was more broadly valuable, like helping people shop for cameras right. by giving them specs on the new cameras that are coming out. And which do I want to be? And what's, what's a marker of quality? I know the answer. I, I know the answer. But yeah, I absolutely hear you on like that. That comes and goes. But it's our responsibility, I think, on the bad days to still stick the logical conclusion in front of our face, even if we don't feel it and go, yeah, but I know better than this. I might feel like right. this today, but I do know better than this. Well, and I think, you know, to, to, to address, you know, Mike's question, one of the things that, that I think is so important is surrounding yourself with people that you can, that you can really talk to and that really hear you mm. and that you can really hear in return. Yeah. Whose feedback and sometimes tough love can be heard and not dismissed. Yeah. I mean, you and I have such a terrific friendship. You have said lots of things to me that I really don't like. No. But I know them to be true and I know where they're coming from and I hear them. Yeah. And I think that is so important. I, I don't have friends who don't do that, honestly, because mm. I, I, if, if I have friends who only tell me nice things, I don't trust you. Yeah. I don't trust you to tell me what I need to hear. You'll keep it to yourself because it's more important that I like you than that you help me. And, and that's not a friend at the end of the day. 
People who only tell me nice things are worried about upsetting me or worried that I won't like what they say. I, I think when I've said things to you in the past, I've said, like, I'm only saying this to you because I wouldn't be a good friend if I didn't. And I, I, Absolutely. I'll preface it with stuff like that because I want you to know if this is a harsh thing to hear, I wouldn't say it unless unless I really think you need to hear it because because whatever you're doing at the moment or where, whatever you're thinking is actually, I think... A, a, a dark path to go down not a good place to be and i don't want to see you do that right there's no, nothing in me that wants to offend you or upset you at all and i need those friends in my life i need those people who are, are like you're not going to like what i'm going to say now but i'm telling you because i care because then i know i never have to question are you thinking things about me that i won't like and you're not telling me Mm-hmm. because I know that you will tell me the good and the bad things if you think I need to hear it, in which case I can just relax around you because I know communication is good. Right. Like the, I think this works for all relationships. You can't do deep, meaningful relationships without that honesty. It, it doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work for me. I'm not interested. It's, it's got to be both sides of it and, and all done with love and making sure that you communicate. The only reason I'd ever say anything to you that potentially might hurt your feelings is because I care about you. And I'll do it carefully, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it, risking that you might not like me afterwards. You might decide, I don't want to be your friend after you said that. But if I really believe you need to hear it because it's for your best and I work out a good way to say it and you decide that, well, I lost a friendship, but, but I did it because I cared and, 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 and that's unfortunate, you know? Yeah. I, um, one of my oldest friends, she would always say, you know, you can tell anyone, pretty much anything, if you serve it up the right way. It, re- it really comes down to delivery. And I think even like a little preface or a disclaimer or just a reminder that, hey, this is coming from a space of love. This is coming from a space of, of really caring about you, but you may not like how it comes out. That can go so far into really allowing you to hear something that you otherwise would shut down or dismiss pretty quickly into that comment or into that, that piece of advice, whatever it is. Yeah. It's that Theodore Roosevelt quote, isn't it? It's nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Hmm. Oh, that's great. I've never heard that. Yeah. It, ha- it has to be hand in hand. Otherwise you're just an ass, you know, or a know-it-all who, who likes to throw, you, you, we all know intellectual bullies who, who just, throw things around and like hurting people because it makes them feel powerful and they know every, more than everybody else. No one cares how much you know. Um, wh- why are you saying what you're saying? It's why, tr- it's why trolling is so hideous. Because mm. you don't care. You're just trying to hurt people because you think it's funny. Well, you're not a good human being. Or you're, or, or you're, or you're a hurt person hurting people. That's, that's all that's going on there. Um, yeah, I, but you have to have those friends. Like having that, the way I talk about it in the book is, um, having honest mirrors in your friends mm. or your relationships, having people who I'm, I, if I stand in front of you and have a conversation with you, I'm going to see who I really am mirrored back and you're going to, you're not going to let me think too much of myself and you're not going to let me put myself down either. You're going to help me get a sober view of myself and show me that honest mirror, that honest facsimile of who I really am in the world and where I'm going wrong or what I'm doing right. And I'm going to believe you because I trust you. That when you have that, I think, yeah, you're right. It, it's a it's a good cure for imposter syndrome. As long as you trust those people, as you find those people that you'll believe when they tell you that. Well, I think that's where a smaller, more engaged audience can be 
a very healthy antidote to all of this. Oh yeah. Right. I like, I have no idea. I was talking to, to Neil James yesterday. Oh, nice. And who's, oh, he's, he's so lovely. He is lovely. I, 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 he's so great. I mean, if, to, to those of you listening, if you ever get the chance to talk to Neil James, do, do it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> because he's, he's really lovely. Yeah. Um, but we were, we were talking about some of these same things and, and, and the frustration around it. And he was talking about smaller audiences and, and we were saying how there comes a point where, where you, you can no longer sort of believe the mass because it's gotten out of control. It's gotten to be, to be too big and too sort of beyond your, your grasp in a sense. And I think one of the things that has happened with this show is like, I, I have no idea how big our audience is. Um, and that was, that was one of the things that, that Neil and I were talking about. He asked, you know, how, how big is the audience for the show? And I said, I, I have no idea. I don't look. Mm. Um, partially because if I know if I look, whatever it is, isn't going to be enough Yeah, on some level, whatever it is, is not going to be enough compared to X or Y or Z. And on the other side of that, whatever it is, it really doesn't matter. Because the, the, the people that, that are engaged with this show, they're in, they're, they're engaged. They're, they're, we get emails, we get messages, we get, uh, feedback that means more to me. And I think to you as well, than if there was another zero on the end of the listener count. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's how I feel about everything I do though. I mean, I'd rather have, Again, because it's real people versus versus fictitious numbers. I'd, I'd rather have real engaged people who I can picture in a room with me, who we can actually have those meaningful conversations, and there's that rich community feel amongst all that. Mm-hmm. That's fulfilling stuff, rather than an abstract number of people who don't really care about you and they listen to a podcast once, moved on, and forgot about it. I, well, I don't care. I don't care about that person. They're often living their life doing their own thing. That's not important. It's it's the community that's important. And, and the quality of that community is far more important than its, than its size. Because it's, I, I have this theory that, that the bigger you get in terms of the number um, of whatever you do, that, that core community doesn't grow, expert, like it, it doesn't track with it. Because the amount of people who dip in and out of what you do once and then forget about you, but you can track a number that happened once, um, there's not a stable percentage of that that the community within it grows. And it's shown by if you go to any YouTube channel and you look at, um, if you look at an early on YouTube channel that's seeing some nice growth, you'll see that their, their uh, subscriber number versus their number of views per video are pretty close. But when they mm. start getting really, really big, they drop to 5 or 10% of their overall audience. Because that core that follow them for a while, it doesn't get bigger with the subscriber number. Certainly, it certainly doesn't track uh, parallel. It, it's 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 a fraction of the whole. And surely, what we should be focusing on are those people who are with us, who stay with us, not dip in and out once because they're gone already. The people who stay with us, that community that care, that's those those are your people. Those are the people that want to have the conversation that you're having, and that that's who I'm interested in. Thank you again, Mike, for a terrific question. If you'd like to send us your own audio question or comment, email us at deepnatter at gmail.com. Subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything in your favorite podcast app to get 
everything I release all in one feed. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help others find it, you can leave a review or a rating wherever you listen and share it on social media. You can support my shows more directly by tapping the donate button on my website at jeffreysedoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S.com. And thank you very much for your support. It really does make a difference. You can connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck. That's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K. On his website at seantucker.photography or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sidoris. And again, if you'd like to ask us a question, offer feedback, or send us an audio note, email us at deepnatter at gmail.com. The music and effects in this episode are from Artlist, which is a terrific resource for YouTubers and podcasters and filmmakers. They've got vocal and instrumental tracks in virtually every genre, so you're sure to find something for your next project. And if you use the link in the show notes, you can get two months free when you sign up for an annual subscription. As always, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your time, and we hope you'll come back for the next one.